All right. Cool. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad to see you here. Uh, it is good to know that for many of us, we are exiting out of this um, cold flu thing that's been making its way around. You know, many of us have been uh, impacted by that, so I'm glad that we're doing better. I'm also excited that we got to enjoy our one taste of uh, snow for North Carolina this past week. You know, I'm sure it won't come back again this year. Um, that's just kind of what we deal with here. Uh, but enjoy the nice, you know, 60 degrees outside today. So it's lovely. Um, you know, maybe go play volleyball or something. I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm glad you're here. Again, my name is Craig Spivey. I serve on the leadership team here with Connect Church and... I get the honor and privilege to uh, lead you through our text this morning. We're we're in Romans 9, and we're beginning in verse 24, and we're going to move through verse 29 today. And uh, to give you just a bit of an introduction to this text, um, I don't want to say it's a simple text that we're looking at, but maybe uh, straightforward is a better word for it, or clear, uh, meaning that I imagine most of us can read this text and, and really get the, the idea that Paul is trying to put here before us. And as I teach through that, that's kind of a double-edged sword for me because on one hand, it makes it a little bit easier to prepare uh, a text, prepare a sermon for that. But on the other hand, I feel like it adds a little bit more pressure to it also. Um, so I hope today that the Lord will use His Word and speak to you through it uh, even in the, the very straightforward nature, I pray that you would be encouraged from it. Uh, I pray that we would be challenged from it. And with this text, we we'll want to do something just a little bit different today in our time, and that is, as we walk through these verses, as we close today, I want to kind of handle it a little bit differently, and I uh, hope that uh, it will be a convicting and challenging for all of us. But I just want us to look at some of the points again and then take kind of an inventory of our lives and ask some, some deep questions and see... Uh, where where we are spiritually, I want, us, I want us to be able to look before the Lord and say, "Here I am, God. You know, where do you need to grow me?" So that's kind of my hope and my my goal for this time. Um, if you will, let's read our passage. That's Romans nine twenty four through twenty nine, and then join me in prayer before God. Verse twenty four: Even us whom He has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, Uh, I thank you that we can join together this morning. I thank you for the time we can spend just in worship and and singing before you. God, I pray that uh, that that time would be uh, beneficial for our souls. I pray that we would believe the words that we sing, that 
Jesus did pay it all. God, and that you are a wonderful maker and that you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our adoration. Um, Father, I pray that our, our lives would look like that. Um, would you use your word this morning, Father, to stir up in us conviction, stir up in us strength, encouragement, Father, that we are able to, to live the life that you put before us. I pray that we would see the, the mission field that you've put in front of us every day um, here in, in Sanford, North Carolina. Uh, just use your word, God. I pray that you would uh, strengthen us. And as we leave here today, uh, we would be walking um, walking towards Christ-likeness. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So as we get started, um, I just want to take you briefly through a little bit of a journey over where we've been the past couple weeks. So I want to make sure that we're all kind of tracking together as we hit this text today. Um, so I'm going to look back at Romans 8 and then where we've been in Romans 9. There's a lot of weight in these passages. Even in our, our straightforward passage today, there's a lot of weight there. And what happens is we will miss the biggest or the grandest takeaways, which in reality those turn out to be the doctrines of our faith that we hold tightly to. We're going to miss those if we forget where we've been as we approach this text, if we forget kind of the context that's led up to where we are. So not many weeks ago, Romans 8, we saw in verse 23 that collectively creation and us as people were groaning under the weight of sin, that there is a longing, a calling within an us for eternity because we're broken. Creation is broken. We know this, and we know that this truth applies universally to all people and all of creation. And then the very next verse, verse 24, Paul shines a light on the hope of freedom that's before all people and all creation, a hope that is coming. Then he moves to verse 26, and what he does, he highlights the effects of uh, all this groaning on our daily lives. Our struggles, our weaknesses, they're ever-present in our lives, and we're never going to escape those here. However, he gives us more hope even in that weakness, and that's this, that the Holy Spirit will be there with us. The Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness. And then Romans 8, verse 28, brings even more hope, even more good news, and that all things work together for good, that is the ultimate good, which we know is that we will look like Christ for those who love him. And up until that point, God, through Paul, has given us promise. He's given us hope. He's given us direction. Now, if you would, pause there for just one minute. Imagine you go home today, and you get a knock on your door. You open it up. You see who it is. And someone's at your door, and they're telling you that they just deposited into your bank account a million dollars. In that instance, I would imagine a couple of things would go through your mind. At first, you'd probably be quite excited about this news. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do with a million dollars here on this earth that would further our livelihood right now. Um, there's a chance, even in this very fake scenario, that you might have thought of something instantly that you would do with a million dollars. You know, you probably have something in your mind that right now you're thinking, oh yeah, I'd do that. But where does your mind go after that? What's the next thought that we have in our mind? Now this is great news, it's great hope, 
It's something to be excited about. But I'm guessing our next thought would go something like this. How can I be sure this is real? Or how is this possible? So even with the great promises and the great hope we had in Romans 8, God knows that in our weakness, in our minds, we will still wander. We'll be thinking, how can we be sure of these promises? And fortunately for us, we have the answer to that question. Paul continues on. In verse 29, he lays out how we can be sure. We see that it was God, not us, that initiated that outworking of good. Again, that's us looking like Jesus Christ. God set the course. He called you. He justified you. And he will glorify you. And if God was so intentional that before you were born, he set these plans in motion. If he was so invested in you that he had kept with his holiness and his righteousness, meaning that he would have to provide the sacrifice to pay for our sin, our hate, our selfishness, our pride, our racism, our envy, and our lust. If God would do that, then why would he not be faithful to his word? and that he will work things for our good. Again, that we would look like Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 8.32. If he had been faithful, if he was that invested, why would he not keep it up? And then verse 39 wraps up chapter 8 beautifully. It gives us this hope. Nothing can separate you as a believer from this love. Once you're a child of God, There's nothing that can take that from you. So it's in this midst of this hope that Paul moves from verse 39 and he begins to talk about his brothers. Remember, Paul, Jewish. Paul's writing that his heart is broken for his Jewish brothers, that they are missing out on those wonderful promises we just talked about in Romans 8. Now take another pause. Romans 8, 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now the next thought then we're probably going to have in our mind is how then are the Israelites cut off? Aren't they God's chosen people? So how do you reconcile those two things? That's what Paul does. Paul addresses this question, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 9 and running through verse 13. These beautiful words, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word, his truth, his promises have not failed. The promises we saw in Romans 8 have not failed. Here's Paul's answer to that question. Instead of receiving the promise directly through physical origin, Instead, those receiving the promise are those who are called. Those who are called to be children of Israel. And that's Abraham named Israel. That's where the promise came to Abraham. Abraham was promised by God that God would create his people from his line. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, both biologically children of Abraham. But only one of those lines would be a child of Israel. As we saw last week in verses 14 through 23, Paul is addressing another question then. 
that question of, is this not unjust? Is this not wrong? So Paul addresses why this is not an injustice. In our minds, we're going to be tempted to scream out, that is not fair. But as John Piper said, there is no sin in God. Fair is that every person outside of Jesus Christ deserves to be turned away from God the Father. And when we see that, we know that we don't actually want, desire fairness. It's mercy for even one to enjoy him in eternity. So the text we have today then, Paul returns back to his point that he left off in verse 13. He's laying out who is this kingdom of Israel? Who are God's people? And he gives us two similar but different perspectives laid out. And the way he goes about this is is somewhat interesting. So uh, we're going to go back to Romans 9, verse 24. If you would just read verse 24 with me here. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The verse 24 is picking up in a bit of an odd place. While verse 24 is picking up thematically, where verse 13 left off, is taking that point even farther. Paul is explicitly including the Gentiles among those whom God is calling to be his people. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Even us, Paul says, and that's tying that to the last part of verse 23 there, even us, that the Gentiles are included in these vessels of mercy God's prepared beforehand. Remember, Verse uh, 23, we're looking at vessels of mercy composed of vessels of wrath and that God uses a vessel of wrath so that the vessel of mercy would see his goodness. And Paul's saying that the Gentiles are included. That would not have been a statement that would have been received lightly. Up until the life of Christ, the vast majority of God's interaction with his creation was directed toward the nation of Israel. His promises, his provision, his instructions, they were mostly given to Israel. That's not 100% exclusive, but it's close. So for now, Paul's saying, so that the faith, the promises, the blessings, and the hope to be extended to Gentiles, that wasn't a word that was going to be accepted with open arms by the Jewish community. But nevertheless, Paul is clear that God summons into relationship with himself Gentiles as well as Jews. And Paul is so confident in this truth, he does something pretty, pretty amazing here to make his point. In verses 25 and 26, Paul He's going to quote the prophet Hosea, an Old Testament prophet to Israel. And in verse 27 through 29, he's going to quote Isaiah, again, another prophet to the nation of Israel. Paul is quoting Old Testament prophets who spoke directly to Israel, and he is now extending the promises to the Gentiles. And contextually, that would have given a big red flag 
to the Jewish people that would have read those words. But our text in Romans 9 is clear. And this is where we have to land in regards to what Paul is saying here. Uh, This text is reflecting a hermeneutical, it's a big word, but what that means is how we read and how we interpret Scripture. This text is reflecting a hermeneutical supposition that the Old Testament predictions of a renewed Israel, a restored Israel, find their fulfillment, including the church. Paul was clearly trying to break down some of the boundaries between the Jews and the Gentiles. And as we move through Romans, and when we move through chapter 10, and we move to Romans 11, you're going to see how this water doesn't necessarily get any clearer. There's going to be mud stirred up in this water a little bit. But this is where we have to land into the words that we have here in Romans chapter 9, that Paul is breaking down the boundaries between Jews and Gentiles as it relates to the kingdom of God's people. So let's read verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, it's such a wild story that you find in the Old Testament. Uh, Some months ago, the vision team here at Connect, we were going through a Bible study on the minor prophets of the Old Testament, and we spent a lot of time discussing, thinking, and praying over this story. There were a lot of questions. There were a lot of conversations that, you know, you're just like, what is, I mean, how does this even happen? But it's such a vivid picture of God's position in our lives. Briefly, though, just to give you background, this is what's happening. God is using Hosea, a prophet, Gomer, his adulterous wife, and their children to speak to the divided nation of Israel. Israel is split into two groups, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom have not been faithful to the Lord. At this point in time, they are appointing kings. You know, they've moved away from judges. They wanted kings. We had a line of kings, Saul, David, that continued on. But after David's house, it broke. It went two different directions. The northern kingdom, at the time of Hosea, had elected nothing but evil kings. They did not honor the Lord. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah, is what it's referred to in the Old Testament, they had a mix. Some kings they would appoint would honor the Lord. Some were faithful. However, some were not. And God makes two statements directed toward the northern kingdom of Israel. And he makes these statements through the names he tells Hosea to give to his his children. He tells him to name one of his daughters, not my people. And then he's going to name another one, no mercy. Those are awful, awful names to give a kid, right? God is declaring to the northern tribe that he will not have mercy. He's saying that they are not his people. 
And that's chapter 1 of Hosea. God's proclaiming this harsh separation from the house of Israel. But the text we have here today is quoting chapter 2. So you just move on a brief bit and you're into chapter 2. And this is what you have to draw from this today. Who was it that judged Israel and said they would not receive love in chapter 1? It was God. And who then in chapter 2 would turn around and say that he would bring them back to himself? It was God. See, church, it is God's sole discretion that anyone is brought to be his people. How beautiful are the words we have there. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And it's in that that we see the greatest act of love that we're ever going to know in our life. The greatest act of love that we would ever know is that a sovereign God would bring sinners into his family. Not just sinners, but sinners that are actively opposing him. God would show them mercy and he would give them grace. And that's you and me. That's what we see here. It's not that God loves you, so, and in turn, he's going to give you a lot of stuff. God certainly does bless us in this life. But so much more is this, that because he loves you so much, he's going to call you into his family. And to further show this connection between being, show, being chosen as God's people and his love, Paul then moves to another Old Testament prophecy. And this time it's in Isaiah. So read with me verses 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So as we did with Hosea briefly, let's try to lay some groundwork here for the book of Isaiah. Again, the nation of Israel was still divided, north, south. And as a whole, the nation had a very, very big problem. Um, The northern kingdom, still unfaithful to the Lord, and at this time, the southern kingdom, also unfaithful to the Lord. They had elected a king called Ahaz, and if you read Isaiah, you will see that Ahaz was an evil king. So what's this imminent problem that's before them? It's this, that the nation of Assyria was about to attack and destroy the northern kingdom. In their rebellion before God, they had been continually in seasons of war and conflict, and Israel no longer was the dominant military player on the map and solely because the hand of the Lord was not with them. Assyria 
was now the dominant military, and they were going to end Israel. That's the northern ten tribes. So have you ever found yourself in a position where you know what's coming, you know it's going to be bad, and you can't do anything about it? It's a very helpless feeling. And that's what Israel was staring right in the face. They were looking at impending doom. And there's a very real weight to this text. Look at what it's saying. That God will carry out his sentence. Those are scary words. And if you follow back through the Old Testament, you're seeing exactly what's happening. God is using the Syrian army to inflict this punishment on Israel in accordance with their disobedience before him. The Lord was going to carry out that punishment. But in that darkness, there is hope. And what Isaiah cries out is that the Lord will be faithful to a remnant of Israel. Even though the nation of Israel would be like the sand of the sea, the Lord will be faithful to a remnant. Not everyone will receive that punishment. And what Paul is doing, he's bringing this argument here to its climax, to the very top it can go. And that is that God is faithful to those he chooses to call. Not specifically to a line of ethnicity. One other thing I want us to see here in this text from from Isaiah's word. Can you look at this and can you sense kind of a spirit of humility in those words? I mean, look at verse 29 again. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offsprings, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, you're most likely familiar with that story, Sodom and Gomorrah, so we're not going to dive into that. But on the very basic level, it was a city and God destroyed it. It was gone. The Jews would have been very familiar with that piece of history. And they would have been looking at this coming attack from the military of Assyria and feeling like their path was going to be the exact same with Sodom and Gomorrah. However, as Isaiah says, if the Lord had not left us an offspring. There's humility here in knowing that God could have wiped them out completely but he chose not to. God was calling them to be vessels of mercy for his kingdom. So like I said, I wanted to do something a little bit different as we try to tie this together today. I've got four points here. I just want to highlight them that kind of reflect our text and then we're going to take a little bit of a detour. Four points from our text today. One, God is absolutely free in his position to call whoever he pleases to his family. Secondly, it is by God's call, not ethnicity, that brings people to God's people. Third thing, the most loving act in the world It's for someone to move from the position of not my people to becoming God's people. 
And four, God is always faithful to those he calls. So with that in mind, here's what I want us to do. I've got a few questions here, and they really don't flow in a particular order. Just as I'm going through this text, as I was preparing this text, again, it's fairly straightforward. These questions kept coming to my mind. And what the Lord is doing with them is, all right, how do these questions reflect in your life? What does your life look like in response to these? So here they are. One, how does this passage lead me to a God-like love for all people? There would have been serious tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And these words would not have necessarily eased some of those tensions. But it's clear that God's family is made up of both. And in a bigger picture, it's made up of people from across the entire globe. Does the way that I live as a follower of Christ show a love and a concern for all people? That's people that it's easy to love. And that's people that it's difficult to love. Second question. If God is calling people from across every spectrum of the world, how does my life reflect an evangelistic love for them? Is my life sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone? So from my words or from the way that I'm living my life right now? Third question, if the greatest act of love you and I will ever receive is becoming a child of God, does my life show that? Does my life show that I am thankful for that gift? Do I model a humility like Isaiah, knowing that I could have been left to my own sin? We could have been left in our own despair. Or, if I dig down deeper into my heart, do I really want more? Is the love that I've been shown not enough? Do I need and seek love from others as a higher importance than God's love? Do I live a life of bitterness and wanting more than I have, thinking on some level that I deserve it? And the fourth question is this, if God is always faithful to his people, do I trust him or do I doubt him? And you know, we we had Connect Group this week and we were talking about the role that uh, anxiety plays kind of in all of our lives. And there's something here that I think we can take hope in. We are broken people. This world is broken. You're going to come to places in your life where you have no idea what's happening, you have no idea what will happen, and you don't know exactly what steps you need to take. And those feelings aren't wrong. It's not wrong to feel like you don't know what you're doing or what you need to do. But here's where it it does cross that line into a sinful thought. It's when it moves away from, okay, I don't know what's going on, to a position where we would say internally, probably not, vocally, 
that God doesn't know what he's doing in my life. That he's not going to be faithful to me. Or even worse, that he's actively against me. And if you're a child of God, that's not true. So if you're like me and you take those four questions and you answer those four questions, you know, there's a real chance that you look at those and, you know, if we, we put a mark up here, we might fall underneath that. And there's hope in that the Lord is faithful to you. The Lord is faithful to forgive us when we're in sin. And our time today, I don't want that to be a mark of discouragement. I want that to be our mark of what God's calling to in our lives. And as we leave today, and as we prepare to leave today, our prayer should be, God, how can you use me like this? How can you use my life like that? How can in all that I do honor you? How can I share the gospel, not just with words, but also with the way I love people, the way I love family, the way I care and serve others? How can you do that, God? And that's my prayer today. That's what i praying that God will correct me and guide me because if we just try to do all these things on our own, that's not really accomplishing much. However, if we allow the Lord to lead us and guide us and say, here, go here, if we're faithful to do that, he'll use us for his kingdom. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come and we're going to close in song this morning. Father, we do thank you We thank you for the beautiful truth that your word gives us, God, that you choose to call people. uh, And for us here today, God, we're thankful that we're included in that group of people, that we're not excluded by our nationality. Father, I pray that your spirit would use your words to just humble us, uh, need to be humbled, God, that if I dig deep, sometimes I think that I deserve more. God, I pray that your spirit would gently humble us in that. And that the picture of your love through Christ would be enough for us. We would model the words Paul would say, God, that you, everything else is dirty rags, God, but you and your kingdom, that's gold. I don't need anything else. Give me more of you. Father, we're broken. We're sinners. You know that. Your spirit guides us and helps us in our weakness. I pray we would be faithful to confess, repent. God, entrust your forgiveness. Entrust that you're faithful to us, that you can use our life for your glory and for your will if we don't get it. It's in Christ's name.